And we pray, amen. Amen, you can be seated. Uh, yeah, so this morning, I uh, actually last night, I was finishing up my, my sermon. My stomach started to hurt so bad, and uh, then I got a stomach bug of some sort. And so I, uh, if I pass out or if I run off the stage, weirdly, uh, you'll know why. And so uh, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather this morning, so we're, gonna, we're probably going to be short. It's going to be a short sermon. Uh, that's probably not true, but we're, we're hoping for that. And so... Uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see where we get. But um, hey, the elders uh, and a, a couple other guys are, are taking off, and we're going to to Devil's Lake, uh, Lord willing, as long as everyone is healthy uh, this afternoon. We're planning on leaving right at a little bit afternoon, and so. Um, uh, but we're we're going over there is what we're calling a prayer retreat, and we're just seeking the Lord right now on where what what's next for us. Like four years ago, we kind of. Uh, wrote down a bunch of visionary documents that were about where our church is going and what God is doing here, what we believed that he was doing here. And, and by and large, God has blessed that, and he's, he's uh, been in the midst of that. And, um, but we're, we're kind of at a new phase as a church where we're saying, Lord, what's, what's next for us at this point, and uh, how do you want us to proceed? I, I can tell you this, that um, there's, a, there's a sense of, I don't, I don't necessarily want to call it angst, but maybe a little bit of angst. Of, of just like, man, Lord, it, I, I, I feel like we have, we have some new things to enact around here at Outward Church. Um, and, and so we're, we're just seeking the Lord in this. And we, we need him to answer those questions. We need him to, to be the one who speaks uh, this morning uh, or in, uh, over the next couple of days uh, to the elders. And so you can be praying for us. We're going to be praying for you. Uh, we're going to pray uh, for the church and pray for our, our members and anybody else that we uh, remember uh, at the same time. So if you're a member at Outward Church, you're on a list of people. Um, it's not the naughty or nice list or anything like that, but it's, uh, you're on a list, and so we're going to pray for you by name. Uh, if you have a prayer request, if you have something that's, that's going on, something that you uh, would, would like uh, the elders to pray for, could you just write that on the connection card? Um, you could email it to us also, info at outwardchurch.com, or my email, matt at outwardchurch.com, and we'll pray for, for you for those, those things. And um, we just want to lift up the church in prayer and just say, Lord, what do you have for us um, during this season? And so um, uh, be praying for us, and we will be praying for you. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 9, and in Genesis chapter 9, uh, we, we kind of left off. Uh, talking about the covenant, I'd say in about verse 17, um, just before Christmas, we we're talking about the, the Noahic covenant uh, a little bit. We, we breezed past verses 1 through 7. I'm not even sure I read them uh, the, the last time. I've read them before, but I didn't read them in the sermon <laughs> uh, last time. But uh, verses 1 through 7 there really lay out kind of a, a theology and the basis behind the sanctity of life. And when we talk about the sanctity of life, when we talk about the sacredness of life, uh, what comes up most of the time, and today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, which is commonly talked about in regards to uh, ab abortion and, and other issues uh, like this, and so I'll, I'll get to that in just a second, but um, this passage is really talking about the sacredness, and why is it sacred to God, and why it should be sacred to you, and I would, I would say this, that 
we, we sometimes can believe that aspects of life are sacred. We can sometimes believe that, that we are taking it seriously, uh, but in reality, on some level, we aren't really taking that seriously. Take, for instance, the idea that many evangelical Christians oftentimes, not always, uh, vote Republican. Republicans tend to be um, uh, pro, uh, not pro-choice, uh, anti-abortion, I should say, and, uh, and, and things like that. And so what, what happens is this, or pro-life is what I was looking for, pro-life. Uh, what happens is this, is that we find ourselves in this weird position, if, if you happen to be a Republican, where you're voting for life in that sense, uh, you're, you're pro-life and that you, you don't want to see abortions take place and you don't want to see um, phys- physician-assisted suicide or, or suicides for that, that matter or, or what have you. But at the same time, there's also this, this sense in which we don't really have much of a, uh, a care for the lives of people around us. The, the major criticism of Republicans oftentimes is this. The only thing you care about is that baby when he's, he or she is in the womb. And then once they're born, you don't give a rip about that child. And it really is kind of a true criticism. That may not be you, but I would say generally speaking, if you look at the, the voting record and, and things of that nature, you would be able to say you care about life in the womb, you may not care about life outside of that. So we find ourselves in polarizing uh, places and, and things like that. People oftentimes, and I don't know how much of this there is, but I, I oftentimes hear just negative comments uh, occasionally, just about when we bring up abortion, like we, we supported that, uh, you know, that legislation that w- was being voted on just recently. I want to say it's 106, measure 106, 105. Is that right? 106. Yeah, we, we were in support of that. We've never done that before publicly. We've never talked about a, a measure before publicly. And we just are unashamedly just pro-life. We're just pro-people. So here's, here's what I know. Here's what I know is that there's a lot of people in this room who are, uh, who have probably taken part in abortion. Um, you might even support abortion. You may have had an abortion and no one knows. And you carry a lot of guilt about that. Or maybe you don't carry guilt about that and you're really angry that I'm even bringing this up right now. I want to tell you that um, Jesus has an immense amount of grace for you. We believe that the biggest issue in our lives is not that we um, support abortion or don't support abortion. The biggest issue in our lives is that we've got to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us before we can even come to right conclusions about issues and things of that nature. So understand this morning that if you're here and, 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 and you've been hiding something for a while, or if you're here and you support uh, abortion or, or things like that, I, I just want to tell you that we just love you, and we're so glad that you would hang out with us this morning. And I, I understand that we probably see things uh, differently, but I just want you to know that you're loved, you're cared about, we're glad that you're here. I hope that you'll hear me out. I'm probably not going to talk about abortion a ton uh, this morning. Um, but uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 9, beginning verse 1, says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth 
and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I, re- I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will re- require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Now, this is really kind of a, a reiteration, or it's, I should say it's the first iteration of the sixth commandment, which talks about, uh, talks about not murdering, not killing. It, it really is the first time it's talked about, although we see in the life of Cain and, and Abel, which is before this in the book of Genesis, that Cain clearly knew that he should not have killed his brother. He clearly knew that someone uh, would want to kill him because he killed his brother Abel. And so it seems like it is repeating something that's already known to be true. And so what's, what's happening here is that it's really kind of laying down these rules, these laws that are basically going to govern society from here on out. If you remember early on in the book of Genesis, you had Adam and Eve and things seemed to be going fine. Uh, God tells them not to eat of the, the fruit uh, uh, of this tree, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, they go ahead and do so anyway. And what happens is just violence and turmoil ever since then. Ever since humanity stepped out of uh, working with God, ever since humanity stepped out of having relationship with God and doing what, they, what he would have them do, what took place was just violence upon more violence and violence. And so you see that in the life of Cain and Abel. You see that in the life of Lamech, who is a little bit later after that. And you just see this just endless cycle of more and more and more and more violence. Until it finally says, that, says this, that God is sorry that he ever created everyone because of all of the violence in the land. There's no respect for life. There's no respect for other people. And so what we see here is we see that this world is just coming apart at the seams. And so God says, all right, I'm destroying everyone and everything that moves on the earth. We're going to get rid of all of that stuff, all of those people, all of, all of those who, uh, who are involved in this violence. No one was not at fault. Everyone was at fault, it says. And so we're going to get rid of all of those people. And so here we have, we have Noah and his three sons and their wives and their sons' wives and, and things like that. So we just have this small group of people. We're going to see some really interesting stuff as we go on in this passage of like, did, did we really take care of the evil problem? Did we really get it solved through that? And so what we see from this and what we see today is that we still have a major problem with the way that we view life. I'm not even talking about abortion per se. I'm talking about violence. I'm talking about the ease at which people kill today. I'm talking about the suicide rate. I'm talking about the violence that we see on a regular basis. Just continual violence upon violence and violence and violence. It's just, it's endless. There's violent video games and there's violent movies and there's violent 
all, all kinds of things that happen. And our world is really filled with this violence. And so while I look out in this room, I don't see anybody who looks like they probably killed anybody, although that's certainly conceivable that they outright murdered somebody. But on some level or another, each one of us holds fault for the way that we view life today. And the question is, do you view it the way that God views it? Let's look at the passage in depth here. It says this, God, uh, God blessed Noah, chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons. And he, and he says something to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is a recreation, in a sense. This, this, God said this very same thing to Adam and Eve. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to multiply. And ultimately what he's saying is, I want to see humanity flourish. I want to see human flourishing. And human flourishing looks like multiplication. It looks like filling. It looks like being fruitful. If you were to notice at the, at the end of the, of the passage, verse 7 says basically the same thing. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. What, what is God saying there? He's saying the context, when you, when you look at this, the, at the beginning and at the end of this small little passage, it's sandwiched in between, hey, you be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then he says it again, you be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That kind of thing. The context that we're talking about is the, the flourishing of humanity. How does humanity flourish? Humanity flourishes when it has the kind of respect for life in the way that God does. Again, I'm not just talking about abortion. Abortion is included in this. I'm not just talking about physicians-assisted suicide. It is included in this. I'm not just talking about murder. It is included, but we're talking about all of life. The way that humans flourish is in the context of which God has created the way that life would happen, the way that life would take place. Look at the next verse, verse 2. The fear of you, the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Now, what, what is the, the, the purpose of this? Well, I want to explain it to you because I think it's, it's somewhat interesting. And that is that it, it seems as though, but we, we can't know for certain, it seems as though prior to this, saying that the fear and the dread of you are going to be you know, with every animal, and, and animals are now going to be afraid of you, they're going to run from you. It seems like before this, like when Noah was taking animals into the ark and things like that, like when Adam was in the garden naming the animals, like there was this kind of docile relationship that they had with these animals. Like you're just walking up and petting a, you know, a tiger or something like that. I mean, that just seems really uh, awkward and, and, and weird uh, to not be eaten alive. But what this is saying is saying it, they are going to fear you. They're going to run away from you as a result. And now this is going to create some type of separation between humanity and the animal kingdom. And he says this, which is interesting, into your hand they are delivered. So it's a reiteration again of God saying, I want you to rule this earth. I want you to be my vice regents. I want you to be over these things and in charge of them. So what we see there is we see that here are animals and humanity is over the animals. Humanity is not equal to animals. 
We are not equal with animals. We are over the animals. God says, I, into, your hand, uh, into your hand they are delivered. He's basically saying, do wish, with them as you wish in the context of creation care. It doesn't mean that we should go out and blow away every single animal. That's ridiculous. Uh, but it does mean that things like uh, hunting for uh, that population control of, of animals and, and things of that nature, and even for food, which we'll get into in just a second, is really a God-given right and a good thing uh, in our world. They've been handed to us to care for. Look at verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you, uh, I give you everything. Now, this, was, this, is, this is rather interesting, and that is that prior to this, we don't know for sure, but it sounds like they weren't really eating meat prior to this. It was a horrible existence. Like they had, <laughs> they had no meat. They had no flank steak. They had no brisket. They had uh, no fajitas. Uh, I mean, it was like vegetarian fajitas, which that's not even a fajita, right? Uh, like, uh, like, I mean, they just didn't have meat. And, and so I am just wondering if the fall of man has really actually been a good thing because now we have meat as, as a result. That was totally heretical. Never repeat that. But, uh, but meat is, is, is such an amazing, an amazing thing. And uh, I am so thankful for chapter 9, verse 3. In fact, it's my life verse. So, uh, so he says this. He says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. And the thing, I, I have to be honest with you, I really like a rare steak. And so I don't know if I'm in violation of this verse uh, on a regular basis, because sometimes I like it uh, a little bit bloody, but most of the blood is out, so I think I'm fulfilling this verse. But what he's saying is, he, he's saying, I don't want you to just go and eat raw meat. I don't just want you to go and eat this raw meat, and it's not necessarily even about sanitary conditions, but it is about the blood itself. God begins to start showing us something about this blood, He's starting to say something, and that is that this blood is really important. Not just the blood of a human, but the blood of an animal. Not just the blood of a human, but the blood of an animal. It's pretty interesting. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> did I do verse 4? I did do verse... There we go. Verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man... From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Now, if you want to look at this literally, so just a little bit of explanation here. When we look at the scriptures, especially the Old Testament scriptures, they're written in Hebrew originally. And so what translators do is they go back to the original Hebrew. If anybody's ever told you, like, the Bibles that we have are just a translation of a translation of a translation, and that's hogwash. That's not true. We go back to the original translation, to the original Hebrew and we look at that. And so when we look at the original Hebrew, uh, the way, one of the best ways for us to understand it is the way that it's written in verse 5. This is out of the ESV, but there's other translations like the NIV and uh, whatever other translations there are. Uh, but uh, if you were to look at it literally, it doesn't flow quite as well, but to look at it literally, what it literally says in the Hebrew, it would be like this. This is verse 5, literally. And indeed, for your lifeblood, I will demand an accounting. 
from the hand of every animal, I will demand an accounting, and from the hand of man, from the hand of each person, his brother, I will demand an accounting for human life. God is really serious. He's so serious, in fact, that he's like, hey, if one of the animals kills a human, the animal is going to be held accountable for that. How does God hold animals accountable? I have no idea. But somehow God has, has put a mark on this animal. Somehow, when an animal takes the life of, of, uh, of a person, God takes it so seriously. He's, he is elevating humanity, but he's also saying something that's very, very important. And the importance of this is essentially this. He's saying, I am the one to whom you are accountable. I am the one to whom you are accountable uh, to for the way that life is treated with you. You are accountable to me. Now, why, why does he say that? What, is it, what does this idea of accountability actually mean? What is, what is he saying? We are held accountable not for the things that we own, but for the things that we don't own. Tim Keller has a fantastic sermon on this, if you ever get a chance. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I, I think I've stolen some things from him in here. If you hear anything good, it's probably from him. But what he says is this. He says uh, that uh, if somebody were to give you $10,000, they were to give you $10,000, and they would say, I need you to go buy X, Y, and Z with that $10,000. That is not your $10,000. That is their $10,000. And now you are accountable because you do not own that. Now, let's just say that it was your $10,000. You are no longer accountable except to maybe the, you know, the government for the taxes or what have you, but you're, you're not accountable for that. You can spend that $10,000 any way that you want. It is because you own it. It's because you own it. You think about if you were to uh, borrow someone's car, you're accountable for how you bring it back. You're accountable for how, how it returns to them. Are there any dings in it? Did you, did you hot rod in this thing around, kind of like I do with every rental car that I get, uh, th that kind of thing? You're accountable for the way that you treat something that is not yours. God is saying this. God is saying that life does not belong to you. Life does not belong to you. You and I and the animal kingdom are accountable to God for what we do with life. Isn't that a fascinating thing? Like God is saying, you're accountable to me for how you treat each other. You're accountable to me for how you get along with one another. You're accountable to me if you take someone's life. I will demand an accounting. See, and this is the way that it goes with a lot of things. In a world, I'm, I'm held accountable for church funds or facilities or what have you because I don't own it. It's not mine. You're held accountable for things that you don't own. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel again, Cain says to God, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, hey, where's your brother? God knows clearly where his brother was. But Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And God is saying emphatically, yes. 
You absolutely are your brother's keeper because God says, I will demand an accounting. I'm demanding an accounting for human life. Now, what, what does that mean? We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that in just a few minutes. He says in verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now look at that. This is in part, I mean you could talk about capital punishment here, but let's try to stay out of the political issues here for just a second. God's saying, you're accountable to me for the blood of your brother, which would be your fellow creation. You're accountable to me. And he says that blood is so important. That, that, that blood is so incredibly important in this area that when, when it is shed, there has to be something that happens. Remember, God said to Cain, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground to me, God says. God is saying that this, that this blood, it, it is something that is crying out. Like, this blood is so important. In fact, it, the importance of blood cannot be overstated. Remember what I said earlier, it's, it's not to be eaten, it's not to be shed. Uh, it says in other places, it pollutes the ground. And it, it, it pollutes the ground until the offender, the murderer, until his blood has been shed. In fact, Numbers chapter 35, verse 33 says this. Numbers chapter 35, verse 33 says, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the one, uh, uh, except by the blood of the one who shed it. God takes life so seriously that he says this, the only thing that deals with the pollution of someone's blood being shed is the offender's blood being shed. God takes that so seriously. So he's doing two things. He's talking about the importance of, of human life, yes, but he's, he's talking about this idea of demanding an accounting. He demands an accounting for this blood. You're not supposed to use blood this way or, or, or this way or this way. God is saying there, there is a major issue here, and that is you're responsible to me and don't misuse blood. He's saying life is so important. Blood is so important. In fact, this is essentially what he's saying. Human life can only be paid for in its own currency. What is the currency of life? It's blood. Human life can only be paid for with blood. When you think about uh, how life is paid for, when there's a, a wrongful death lawsuit, when there's issues like that that come up, how do you place value on a life? How do you value it? 
Like, how can you come up with a value on what someone's life is worth? When you talk about a friend or a loved one who gets killed accidentally or, or on purpose or something like that. Like, well, if you're to go after this person, what the Old Testament says is that there's nothing that can pay back. There's nothing that can pay back someone's life. The only way that that can be taken care of is through the shed blood of the offender. God is so serious about life. And why is that? Look at verse 6 again. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God is saying this. The way that you find the value of a thing is to discern what image it was created in. And God says, it is absolutely priceless. The only way to pay it back is to shed the blood of another. When you're talking about an image bearer, when you're talking about someone who bears the image of God, when their blood is shed, what must happen? The person who shed that blood, their blood must be shed. Human life can only be paid for in its own currency. And so let's look at this for a second. How, how, how heavy, how, how, uh, how serious are we at looking at the importance of the sanctity of life? How serious are we about, about really looking at life? Not just the hot topics the political issues and things like that. But when we see how God views life, these image bearers, their blood, when we see how God takes, how seriously he takes this, how seriously do we take it? See, Jesus says something that's interesting. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You don't need to turn there. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So stop right there for a second. Jesus is communicating something. He's saying, you know the Old Testament law. You've read Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. You know the Ten Commandments. And you think that if you just keep yourself out of trouble from actually stabbing someone or something like that, or maybe you... Maybe you, you've never taken part in abortion or, or, or something like that. You think to yourself, hey, uh, I am I'm clear. I, I, I don't have any problems here. And why is, why is Jesus bringing this up? He's saying this. He's saying life is so important that it doesn't just matter whether you kill someone, but it matters even more. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, Jesus looks at this and he says, I don't just take seriously the actual life, the actual blood, the shedding of blood, but I'm, I'm looking at these people, I'm looking at these image bearers, and I'm saying that you are liable to judgment even if you haven't killed your brother, even if you just say, you fool, 
Even if you just don't care about someone, even if you just mistreat people. See, this speaks to the criticism that our world can make of evangelical Christians oftentimes, which I know not everyone in here would call themselves an evangelical Christian, but it speaks to that. Because our world, on some level, looks at us and says, you know what, I see that you only, you only look at Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 through a lens of not actually killing someone, but you don't take Jesus' words very seriously because of the way that you treat other people. It may be through your voting record. It may be through the issues that you care about. It may be just through the way that you treat people in general. I know I'm incredibly convicted about that. I uh, was thinking through this and saying, you know, how does this apply to me? How does this, do I care about not just the actual life, the, the blood, of course I don't want someone to die, but do, when I look at people around me, do I see them as image bearers? Do I see them as people that bear the image of our God, and so I care for them, whether they believe in God or not? Do I see them in that way? Well, the truth is that oftentimes I don't. I don't. See, how, how do people feel about their interactions with me? Maybe you're unaware, like I am. I'm unaware of the way that I come across sometimes. I, I'm, I'm unaware, and, and I, I get into these moods where I just get gruff. You, you may, may have experienced it. But I, I remember uh, specifically, I had been uh, going to this business and using their, their service for some time. Um, it, was, it was dry cleaning. That sounds really weird, but um, and <laughs> it was dry cleaning. It's, a lot less um, exciting than it sounds, but um, and you know I was using this service over over some time, and I just kept getting frustrated with something specifically that kept happening, and I was like, "Hey, I bring the shirts, you clean them, you give me the shirts back." It's just, it's just a simple transaction. It's like there shouldn't there shouldn't be any like, "Oh, sorry, we lost them," or "Oh, sorry, they're not done yet." When it's a 24-hour dry cleaner, like I'm here 24 hours later, it should be it should be done, and that's the way that I I viewed it. But I, finally, I went in there one day, and I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna say something, but I, I'm, I'm going to try to say it nicely. And so I go into the dry cleaner, and I say, you know, this happens every time, and, you know, whatever it was, whatever I said, it wasn't super kind. It wasn't super kind. And a little while later, I got an email or some type of, it, I think it might have been a Google review, it might have been something along those lines, with somebody who said, you know, I was going to attend your church because someone told me about it, but then I saw the guy who leads that church, and I had this interaction with him, and I'm not coming to your church. And I looked at that, and I, and I go, dude, I didn't cuss this girl out. All I did was I'm sure that I showed her disrespect through the way that I treated her in that interaction. Did you know what she's pushing back against? 
She's saying, you don't value life the way that God values life. You don't value the way, you don't value people the way that God values people. And I see that hypocrisy. So I, I had to start reviewing who I was and what I do. I had to start looking at my interactions with people because I can be somewhat argumentative. Right? It happened with my, with my house. The trust company jacked up some trusses. And I would not let it go. I, I, I could not let it go. And finally, my father-in-law says to me, he says, you know, Matt, there's a line that we need to be careful not to cross when it just becomes argumentative. And I was like, ah, dang it. Why? I, I wanted to be right. I knew that they were wrong. Like, I know how to build a house. Like, you did this wrong. But I was actually wrong in the way that I was treating them. Because I wasn't treating them as the image bearer that they are. I, wasn't, I did not have a theology of the sanctity of life that goes not just to the fact that I don't kill people or shed the blood of other people, but all the way to the top that says, you know, I value every human being that I come into contact with. Why? Because they are an image bearer. And God takes this so stinking seriously, and he wants me to take that seriously. So how do people feel about your interactions with them? How do people feel about the people that you spend time with? The people who have opposing political views? The people that, that uh, you don't like very much? The person you run into out in public who uh, is just kind of obnoxious? And you're trying to have a nice time with family and they just kind of interrupt that and do, what do I do? Do I try to be as kind as possible? Say, great to see you. Is, do, do people get a, a note of uncertainty as to whether Matt loves them or to whether you love that person? Is there, is there any coldness or is there any kind of, you know, stiff arming that happens? This is what C.S. Lewis says, he says, in the weight of glory, he says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is mortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. C.S. Lewis is saying there, he's saying, you're not just dealing with just some cast-off person. You're not just dealing with somebody who just doesn't matter. He's saying, you've never talked with someone who's just an ordinary, uh, an ordinary person. You're talking to people who live eternally. Everyone lives somewhere forever. You're talking to someone who lives somewhere forever. They are an image bearer. And the question is, does your value of the sanctity of life enter into the words that you say and the comments that you make 
and the way that you love those people? Does your theology of the sanctity of life not just extend to some of those big political issues, but also to the day-to-day interactions with the way that we treat people, especially the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, the sojourner, as it says in the Old Testament. I think this is something that we, that we must do. Back to this idea of blood for just a second. Why is blood held up as so significant? Not just the blood of a human, but the blood of an animal. God says, I don't want you to mistreat this blood. I don't want you to eat uh, an animal with its lifeblood still in it. It has value. It's because of this. Because when God looks at blood, he just doesn't see some liquid that's running through our bodies. God looks at blood as something that is so incredibly important. It's so incredibly important because of this. Throughout the Old Testament, they take the animals and they sacrifice an animal. They shed the blood of this animal in order to pay for their sins. It's, they're shedding the blood of this animal because what God says is this, is that my blood deserves to be shed. Because of the way that I treated the gal at the, at the uh, dry cleaners. Because of the way that I treated the trust guy. Because of the way that we treat our friends, our families, our co-workers. My blood deserves to be shed. But what God set up in the Old Testament was this, is that the blood, like blood has to be shed. And over and over and over and over and over again, millions of times, God's people would sacrifice animals and sacrifice animals and sacrifice animals. And these animals, they're not worth that much because they're not created in the image of God. But God is looking at that and he's saying, yes, the blood has been shed for that. And it had to be done repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly over and over and over again that had to take place until Jesus came. Until Jesus came and what we see is this, is that Jesus takes blood so seriously that he says, you know what? I'm going to give the blood of my own son to cover over your sins. He's not just in the, I mean, he is the image of the invisible God, but he's not just that. His blood is so valuable because God looks at blood and he says, it's incredibly valuable. His blood is so valuable that when his blood is shed, when his blood is shed, what happens is this, is that that pays for any murder that's been committed. That pays for any abortion that's taken place. That pays for the interactions with the people that you've been rude to. That pays for that. It says in Ephesians 1.7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Why doesn't God want you to take blood flippantly? Because it matters. God is the one who holds us accountable for the blood that we shed, both literally and relationally. 
God holds us accountable. But what he says is this. He sends the son, Jesus. And Jesus' blood is shed in our place for our sins as a substitute for us. And so here's what you need to know this morning. So maybe you've been hiding for a long time. What you've done, what you've been in support of, whatever. You may not agree with me today, but I can tell you this. That Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross pays for that sin. And you need to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he has set you free from that sin through the cross. If you just receive it by faith. And for those of you that are sitting here and you say, you know what, I don't have a theology of the sanctity of life. I have not taken it seriously because I've, I've mistreated people. I've said things I shouldn't say. Jesus' blood was shed for you as well. And I invite you to partake of that blood. I invite you to receive it by faith this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would cause us to be people who take life so seriously. Lord, we hold the lives of people in our hands every day and the interactions that we have. Lord, I pray that we would take it so seriously that we find ourselves in a place where we would honor you with our words to w with one another, to with the way that we treat people, with the way that we care for the poor with the way that we um, care for the, the immigrant, the sojourner, Lord, and for the unborn as well. Lord, would you cause us to be people that are deeply convicted about, about that, not just about hot topic issues, but Lord, that we'd be deeply convicted that you care immensely about your image bearers and that we are responsible for the way that we treat one another. Lord, we thank you so much for, for going to the cross for us and for, for allowing your blood to be shed for us. We thank you so much for the value that that brings to our lives. It's in your name we pray.